Today's Into the Gloom podcast episode is brought to you by Deadline Horror Collective. Deadline Horror Collective is an independent publishing house that collaborates with horror authors, publishers, and small presses to release the most terrifying novels possible. Their newest release is The House That Bleeds by Jamie Stewart, which is book two of the Price Manor series. The House That Bleeds is a haunted house story unlike any other, featuring a genre-blending mix of gothic horror with modern sensibilities. Buy it now in ebook or paperback. Enjoy the show. The dark and macabre have intrigued us for years, but are their bewitching powers waning? The old greats such as Poe, Lovecraft, and Hitchcock have long since passed into the void. The masters of the 1970s like James Herbert and George Romero are gone. Stephen King and John Carpenter are in their twilight years. So where does that leave the current state of horror? The future is bright and author Thomas Gloom hopes to unveil this truth by discussing the genre's past and present. Settle back, get comfortable, and remember to leave a light on as you enter into the gloom. Humans tend to be suspicious of the things they don't understand. We are often quick to judge, hate, and even fear the unknown. This all becomes quite apparent whenever the topic of the supernatural is brought into public discourse. Yet, while many in the world demonize or laugh, the horror community has cozied up to the supernatural. The subgenre experienced commercial popularity and success, beginning in the 1930s with the explosion of universal monster films, but it ultimately met a sharp decline during the Second World War. Literature, though, both before and after the time Universal Studios ruled the landscape, kept the fascination alive through fiction and non-fiction offerings. There has been a resurgence as of late, and I'm personally quite fond of any story that includes ghosts, demons, gods, or any other supernatural entity. The subgenre is also featured prominently throughout two of my other favorite spooky contexts, folk and religious horror. Whether it's William Blatty's The Exorcist, Stephen King's It, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or Joe Hill's 20th Century Ghosts, I can't get enough of the spooky things that seemingly break the laws of nature. And don't forget about films like John Carpenter's The Fog, It Follows, Candyman, Rosemary's Baby, or the movie that scarred me as a child, Child's Play. Okay, I'll put a stop to this one-man nerd fest and get this show on the road. On today's episode of the Into the Gloom podcast, we'll be discussing supernatural horror. I'll be interviewing my spooky friend and fellow horror author, Mike Salt. Join us, dear listeners, as we discuss the rich history of the films and literature this particular subgenre has blessed us with and why we're still obsessed. Welcome, Mike Salt. How you doing, man? 
I am doing. Let's do this. I like talking spooky stuff, and I like talking to spooky friends. So, um, game. I'm all hyped up on Mountain Dew. Let's freaking roll. All right, all right, man. I, I. Any any interview that starts with a Talladega Nights reference, I know <laughs> it's going to be awesome. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to start. Uh, we're we're going to get this train on the tracks. And so to begin with, I found this definition, this following definition of the word supernatural online. And I want to read it. And then I just want to know if you agree with it. So the definition is as follows of yeah. or relating to an order of existence beyond the visible, observable universe attributed to an invisible agent, such as a ghost or Spirit. What do you think about that definition, Mike? I think that it really appeals to my favorite subgenre of supernatural. It, I, I think it's great that horror has its own subgenres, but I think there's a subgenre within subgenres. Like we have traditional supernatural, like 70s, mid, middle 80s. And then we have my favorite, which is like late 80s to 90s, the entire decade of supernatural. I think it applies really well to those two. I don't know that it, it actually applies to what we're looking at supernatural nowadays, though. I feel like supernatural can doesn't have to be an invisible entity. I think it has to be an unexplainable ent- entity. Mm. You know, something that that you can you can't tangibly say that's real unless you witnessed it. I think that's really what supernatural calls that nowadays. You know, um, and I think that it ha- it took a while to get there where it was just ghosts and it was just the the spookiness that happens in your house or in a, a haunted you know, uh, hospital or something. And now it can literally be a boogeyman movie or it could be, you know, I think that even the Halloween movies are falling into like supernatural, you know, where, whereas before they always had a hint of supernatural, but I, that's just the unexplainable part of it, but it never was full blown supernatural. And like this last one, which everybody hates, but I still argue is fine. It's a fine movie, but, uh, no, I think that, it, it evolves. And that's what I love about this genre of horror is it's not, you can't look at horror from, you know, the seventies and say that it will appeal to the same people today. So, and I think it's supernatural is part of that, that is involved with it. So it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And let me, I, I'm just going to slip in and say, if you're talking about Halloween kills, I also loved Halloween kills. I liked it right? better than the 2018 Halloween. I mean, I like that one too, but Halloween kills that's a good was, one. Oh, I really loved it. I loved how bonkers it was, man. Like legitimately, I like that it just literally said, oh, let's see what happens. And they just freaking went with it. I loved it. Like uh, to, to already sidestep way into your comfort zone, but we're going to go right back out immediately. Everybody hates the sequel trilogy to Star Wars, particularly the Ryan Johnson one. And I freaking love that movie. I hate aspects of that movie, but I love that they tried something different and it didn't necessarily work. But the, the the boldness of going out there and just being like, it's not what you expect. It's something new. And I love that. That's why I like Halloween Kills. I, I love that the entire thing is just the whole town being like, all right, grab your pitchforks. Let's freaking go. So I love that movie. I think it's fun. Yeah. And with, with The Last Jedi, in all of the marketing, <laughs> in all of the marketing, Disney was very clear that this is not going the way to go the way that you think. I mean, that's literally yeah, one of Luke's lines, and they put that in most of the promotional materials. So 
Yeah, I mean, everybody's got their likes and dislikes, but whatever. I mean, I, I still, <laughs> I still will say that one of the best lightsaber sequences was when Ray and Kylo are in the Great Throne Room and they fight, you know, together. I, yeah, amazing. That's, a, that's amazing. fun. That's a good one, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and so, and I, yeah, I mean, your question, yeah. Really, we're not too far off of the topic here because I mean, you could you could talk about the force as being yeah. <laughs> supernatural. You um, really could, yeah. But okay, normally, and and it's already started in this conversation, and I already dipped into it in the introduction. But a lot of the times when we think of the supernatural, our minds instantly go to fiction. And so I want to ask you also, just from the start, do you personally believe in the supernatural or is it more of just a story device for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, uh, I dip in and out. I really I love the idea of the supernatural. You know, I, I think I've romanticized it too much in my own head. I've had spooky things happen. So it, it leads me to hope maybe maybe. Um, supposedly we lived in a haunted house when I was a child, but I was a child. I'm comforted by the, I'm not, I don't want to get into a subject that I don't like. We don't really talk about, but like, I don't really buy into, I'm not really religious as much as the average person is, but I do find comfort in knowing that maybe there is something out there, you know, afterwards and ghosts and supernatural kind of fall on that spectrum, you know, like there is something afterwards, but uh, I don't know. I guess, I guess I, I need proof to actually believe in it. Um, but it is my favorite like a uh, genre of horror movies so it just seemed natural for me to write it and i find it way easier to write a scary ghost story than a scary slasher story like uh when it comes down to it nobody can look at my my book and say well that ghost shouldn't be able to do that and be like it's my rules man it's my world my, my ghost can do as it pleases because i created this universe whereas a serial killer kind of have to lie within a certain boundary of realism you know so i just tend to gear towards that my mind kind of works towards writing you know supernatural generally yeah yeah i mean it sounds like what you're saying it's more of like in you're not a, a believer you're not an atheist you're more agnostic and it's like I'm very agnostic <laughs> you know i'm a skeptic but i also realize i don't know i, I want the yeah, I like the idea. Yeah, I'm very aware. I know very little. Yeah, and I, for me personally, I think that is just a tremendous outlook and worldview to take in this life when it comes to just about everything. I, I try to be curious. I try to question things. I try to be skeptical. And yeah, it's it's it it leads me to always remember I don't have all the answers. I don't know yeah. everything and that humbleness, I guess, when it comes to just life and knowledge and experience, I think that sometimes it can be lacking, especially when we're younger, right? When we're younger, we think we know everything, <laughs> but as we get a little bit oh, older, man. hopefully the mature thing is to realize, oh, I don't have to have all the answers. And sometimes I'm kind of a dipshit. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes <laughs> the mystery of things, it makes it more exciting. You you mentioned yeah. ro romanticizing these sorts of things. And I think that from that perspective, from that place, 
it really does lend to better fiction because yeah. we just have a, a very wide open pal. Uh, uh, what am I, what is the word I'm looking for? <laughs> a canvas. I kept wanting to say right. palette. They, uh, well, I mean, touche. I mean, they both work really like, yeah, yeah but the, the canvas is larger and you can literally paint it as you please. If you don't know what's going on, you would hope that your reader, your, your, your group you're trying to entertain they also don't have all the answers. One would assume nobody has all the answers, you know? So you can throw at it and make people question. Like, I love, there's movies out there that I went to watch. And as when I left it, it had such an impact. And I'm like, is that what I believe in now? Or is like, it, like maybe not necessarily that se severe, but I, I also, I leave and I go, that, that is there's some solid arguments inside there. There's some things that made me want to reevaluate how I view things. Yeah. And I just love that fiction can actually take you on that kind of journey, you know, I'm not going to watch dumb and dumber and leave going, well, maybe, you know, maybe I need to look at my life differently, but <laughs> you know, like there are some movies that I go in there with no expectations and I leave going, that was interesting. You know, I went to, yeah. go, I went there just to be entertained and I'm leaving with something more, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Like I think that answers your question, right? Yes, it does. But you now have opened, <laughs> you've, no, you've opened another can of worms you mentioned it you you mentioned spooky things and you mentioned living in a possibly haunted house so have you personally experienced things that you would consider supernatural and if so tell me more <laughs> <laughs> um i have weird stuff happen i think everybody can always attribute weird things to like you know noises and like the you know the house is old you know cars outside but there's just some things that have happened that I was just kind of like, I, I have no explanation for these kind of things. So beyond that, like we did, my parents, we, 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 we had a house growing up and we lived there for all of six months and they bought it, moved into it. And then next thing I know, my brothers and I have three, I have <clears throat> two brothers and a sister. Next thing I know, we're in a new house. Like they completely bought a house in secrecy, <clears throat> sold our house in secrecy, moved us out of that house overnight. It was Literally, we went to school, and when we got picked up, we were going to a new house. The kid, we always thought that was weird, and it wasn't until we were adults, like we were all camping, and so one of us made an offhand remark about it, like, hey, remember that time we had a house, and then we just didn't all of a sudden? We had a different house? <clears throat> My parents were like, yeah, because, you know, that one was haunted. And we're like, yeah, bullshit. We're going to call bullshit on this. And then they started telling stories, and I was just watching as my brother's eyes, my sister, we were all kind of like, yeah, that actually did happen, but we didn't attribute that to being in a haunted house because they're all separate stories. You know, we weren't like we're all two years apart. We didn't exactly talk about this, the, the weird stuff we saw. And if we did, we're like active imagination, you know, but from my parents point of view, and I can relate that now having, you know, my own children, like all those stories are building up and they're adding up and they're creating their own experiences on top of their seeing or their feeling in the house. And so from being a child, I didn't really see it, but looking back at it, it's kind of like, well, there was some really weird stuff going on in there. So like, uh, there was, okay. So we lived there for six months and for the, up until that point, we lived there longer than anybody has ever lived there for like 10 years. Um, the house was vacant for most of the time, but when somebody would move in there, they'd move right back out or they would, they would rent it out. Be like, they just own it and be, make it a rental property. The one experience that I remember is we had a babysitter and, in the middle of the night, she swooped us all up, put us in her car, and we just sat inside our driveway for like two hours because that was before cell phones and stuff, you know. 
And we just, she just waited in our, in the car outside the house. So my parents showed back up because she could not be in that house anymore. The kitchen, every single, my parents thought it was the kids for the longest time. We would just go there and pull every kitchen drawer open. Like we were looking for stuff and just wouldn't shut it. But then she realized it was happening even when we were napping and such. And a lot of this stuff happened in the daylight, which also threw my parents off because like, you, you know, when you're at night, you're already looking for the scary stuff. Your, your senses are heightened and all that stuff. But when this stuff's happening at daytime, you just don't expect it. My parent, my brothers and I all have this very, very graphic memory. And we all, we talked about it that night of the death of one of our dogs. We had a, uh, this little Yorkie named little bits. And, uh, she was like, she was a lovable dog. Everybody loved her. And we adopted a German shepherd and we had this very graphic memory of us. I think it was my little brother, Daniel calling little bits to the couch. We're all sitting on the couch and little bits jumps in the air. And we have this memory of the German shepherd biting, snapping the dog out of the air and just treating it like a rag doll. And there was blood everywhere. We all remember this and it was very traumatizing. And I remember the blood and I remember like just being in shock. And then when we recounted it with my parents, they're like, there was no blood. Like the dog, it was a, the, the dog, the German shepherd snapped the dog in the air and broke its neck instantly. And there was no blood, but we all remember it. And that could also be attributed to us being little. And it was so traumatizing. You know, we imagined it and built it all up in our head because, you know, we're too young to witness something like that. But in the same vein, like, I do remember that. Like it's weird, but, and then, uh, my brother had an imaginary friend. I remember he had this little (laughs) skunk that was his imaginary friend. Right. And I remember he had this skunk. He would play with it. So like such in depth with his imaginary friend. I was jealous and I was like, I'm two years older than him. And I was like, you know what? I have an imaginary friend too. And my imaginary friend does this. And I just never could get into it. I'm just like, man, he is, he is really good at that imaginary friend, dude. Anyway, my, bro- my dad tells a story where basically my brother's imaginary friend, the skunk for a couple months, they would just play together inside hallways. They play each other, you know, just in the side of the house, like the, the walls of the house and like that. One time he told my brother, like, hey, it's 8.30, time for you to get to bed. And my brother goes, okay. And he stands up and walks away. And then the shadow of his imaginary friend uh, stays there. It's like a little animal stays there and then follows him down the hallway. And that, like, scared the shit out of my dad because there was no animal in the house that was that size. You know, we had a German shepherd. My brother's playing the shadow, and the shadow followed him to his bedroom. So that was one thing that creeped the heck on my dad. The final, the nail in the coffin was, I guess, when my brother, my youngest brother, who was five, and my other, my sister, who was two, uh, they were at the house with my mom. Me and my other brother were out with my dad fishing, and we came back. My mom was just in tears, and it was, uh, I guess, she went to go put my sister down for a nap, and my little brother was in the room with her, and then my mom left the room to go get something out of her own bedroom when she came back. My little brother's like, hey, mommy, who's that girl that's following you in the hallway? And my mom's like, nobody's in the house. And he's like, he describes her as this older lady who's floating off the ground. And he's like, I see her sometimes floating in her hallway. As soon as he says that, my mom smells lavender and all this shit that uh, just wasn't something that she that was in our house naturally. And so that was the final straw. My dad then went around and asked all the neighbors, chill, dog. This isn't about you. Um, went and asked all the neighbors and apparently there was three deaths in that house. There was a older gentleman and then a old lady died in her sleep. Um, and then there was a 10 year old girl 
we got hit by a bus outside our house and they brought her into our house <clears throat> as paramedics were showing up and she died in our house. And then my dad freaked the fuck out because we had like an assignment in class where was to draw our bedroom. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But my dad kept the picture and showed it to me. And it was just like, here's my desk. Here's my bunk bed. And here's the little girl that lives underneath my bed who likes to play the piano. And my dad, I guess, showed that to the neighbor and was like, not to be weird, but that, that, that dress that little girl's wearing was the same dress that that girl died in when she got hit by the bus. And so my dad, my mom were like, yeah, fuck this noise. We're getting the hell out of this house. And they did it so fast. Like they never talked about moving in front of the kids. They never talked about moving inside the house in case the ghost would figure out or whatever, you know, they only talked about it in car rides, you know, or at, my, at their parents' house. And they just did everything in secrecy and just first offer. They took it and they first house they could buy. They sold, they bought, you know? So I don't know. I was too young to remember any of that stuff. I mean, it's fun to think about, I guess. Wow. And your parents did the one thing that nobody in the haunted house movies ever does. And that's just get the fuck out of the house. And they were even smart enough. They were even smart (laughs) enough not to give any hints to the, the spirits or whatever the entities were. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why there's not a a movie based on my family dying in that house tragically. Yeah. True. True. And that'd make for a boring movie too. If something scary happens and then they're just like, all right, we're moving the fuck out and this is never going to happen. Again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the sequel to uh, house on Harlan though, I'm really debating doing a fictionalized version of that house just because it would be fun to kind of relive that. And, you know, maybe yeah. Why I have a lot of stuff to work on, but yeah. As you're telling me, all these stories and you know you have siblings and your parents that are involved it made me think about usually the holidays when families get together I know when my families get together we tell all these stories from when we were kids and just funny things that happened but we didn't have experiences like that are these things that like when your family when y'all get together that you reminisce and talk about some of these things or is it sort of like we don't talk about they're they're like dirty little secrets we don't like my family buries this shit man like i think we'll it'll get brought up we'll talk about it when it happens you know and then we move on and act like it doesn't happen we just don't talk about it again for you know years at that time so yeah, it just it's just it's something that we don't really dwell on. Like I have like my own accounts, you know, my own things happen, weird stuff happen as an adult and I don't like to think about it or talk about it. We I mean, I will talk about it. My wife knows about it. It all happens before her, you know, but it's all just kind of stuff like I don't want to like it's just I'm not going to waste my time thinking about something I can't explain, you know. Now, do your family members read any of your writing? And if so, do you think that it would upset them if you wrote this stuff into a story and then released it? Absolutely zero of my family members read my stuff. Okay, well, so, <laughs> fuck them, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I legitimately, uh, all my sales predominantly come from my social media platforms. Uh, I sell locally to a couple bookstores and they sell out you know, every month and they have me restock it, but I've never seen a family member with one of my books on their shelves. My friends obviously would buy it. I, some of them read it, but, uh, it's not, it's not who I am back at home. Like at home, I'm not the author. Um, I don't write. I mean, as far as anybody else is concerned, I have a group of friends that want to talk to me about it. A group of friends that are 
wanting to be authors themselves. So they'll ask me questions, but predominantly I'm not really uh, author at home. So it is what it is. Dear listeners, I assume you're here because you love scary stories. Reading horror is very rewarding. But I also believe there's something extra special about having scary stories read to you. That's why I include bonus episodes on this podcast. And maybe some of you are angry at the fact that I've only got a handful of narrated stories out so far. Well, I've got a little fix for you. The fine people over at Horror Oasis have a YouTube channel dedicated to creepy short stories. There are author readings, bite-sized terrors, and plenty of beach vacation horror tales for your listening pleasure. So hop on over to YouTube, search for Horror Oasis, and uncover plenty of spookiness to crawl into your eardrums. And for those of you who have been listening to the Into the Gloom podcast from its beginning, thank you. And I believe you're going to recognize a few of the author names over at Horror Oasis. And now, back to my interview with Mike Salt. Now, you can stop me if it's too much. I I tend to, when I interview, I like to poke and prod and get more. But what you're saying, it just, it really intrigues me because everybody has different experiences. Is it something where your family just isn't into horror? Or is it one of those things where you're writing books, you're self-publishing books, and they look at, look at it as this cute little hobby that you do? Or maybe it's something else. So my family doesn't like horror, except for my mother. Uh, she was the, when I was five or six, maybe five, she introduced me to Night of the Living Dead. You know, she was like, it wasn't, it's not scary. You're fine. And I fell in love with horror, though I was completely traumatized by Night of the Living Dead at that yeah. age. You know, and then soon after I watched Child's Play and then it was just like opening a can of worms. But that's legitimately where my love for horror came from was that time in my life where you would walk through Blockbuster, you would see a scary bo- um, uh, cover to a VHS and you'd be like, I guess I'm going to be scared tonight because I have to watch this. My family doesn't care for horror in all reality. Um, and they're not readers. Um, okay. They won't, they won't read anything. I've even given them short stories before and it goes unread. Uh, it's really a lost cause at that point. My wife reads my stuff. I don't have that actual relationship with my external family that I, I, I had in the past. It's kind of eroded. And so my family is literally my kids, my wife, and my friends. And, you know, those are people that matter to me and keeping those, that relationship healthy is important to me. And I got the support I need all from my house. You know, my kids, my kids are excited. They see the books on the shelf. They tell their friends about it. My wife reads everything. She is my biggest cheerleader. Um, then I have a group of friends that we get together every Monday. And when I publish a book, you know, they always take us out to dinner and they celebrate with me, you know? And it's kind of fun. Like I have my support structure. I have my people and they're always there for me. But as far as my external family goes, I just, I mean, it is what it is. Not everybody gets to have that depiction of a, a, you know, a standard family. And I'm, I've accepted it. It's kind of what it is, but I found, I found my people, you know, and that goes for the spooky friends too. Like legitimate, when you approach me, I don't know, man, like April, May, whenever the spooky friends really all got together, uh, I knew some of you guys off, you know, just, you know, just off the peripherals, we talked vaguely. And then when we all got together, I soon discovered, like, I 
didn't know how much I needed this. I didn't know how much I needed this group of people to come together and just, just to have something to, to bounce ideas off of, just to have somebody, a group of people that can vent and understand the industry. And then, then it started getting to where we needed just each other for personal reasons. Like, Hey, this stuff's going on in my life. I need somebody to talk to. And we're always there for it. Like there's, I don't know anymore, 12 people in that group, 14, but we're always there for each other. And it's really, it's really cool to see like, it's, it's become more of a brotherhood sister, like a family than, than it really, like, I don't know if he, that was the intention in the first place, but I really, I really, um, it's important. That relationship is important to me that we've all kind of developed over the year. So yeah, I don't, I don't fight every one of you. I don't care. Gloves <laughs> are coming off. <laughs> no, I agree with so much of what you just said. And yeah, to answer that question, that wasn't necessarily my goal. My main goal in forming that group was really to talk shop and to support each other and to help each other in terms of self-publishing and book ideas and stuff like that. But what it's grown into this, like you mentioned, like a family, a support group, it's really awesome. And so we still have the other dynamic too. And yeah. I, I think it's it's great. And yeah, to have to get to know you all better and then to have y'all as my first interviewees, my first guest on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's really it's cool. And that's one yeah. thing I've I've mentioned to a few people is one of the best bits of feedback that I tend to get about the podcast is that it feels very natural. And I'm, I'm hoping that's just because our chemistry like, and (laughs) I'm talking to people who like horror about something they're passionate about. I'm hoping that's it. And it's not just because we kind of know each other already. And so it's easier. It's more comfortable. So we'll see. We'll see. When you start interviewing people outside the group, I guess we'll see, huh? Yes, exactly. But also, I want to go back to what you were saying, talking about your family, because for me, it's different, but similar in a lot of ways. One difference is I'm I'm really close to my family and there's not really a bunch of family drama and stuff like that. My parents are divorced. My mom and my dad, they were divorced when I was younger. But anyways, they all support me. Like they all think this is so awesome and they get excited when I release new books. But like you said, most of my family, they are not readers and they aren't horror fans. My wife reads my stuff. My stepdad, he reads my stuff and really likes it. And then my uncle, who is a reader, not really a horror fan, but he likes good writing and he thinks my writing is good. So he reads them, too. But then, you know, like I've given my brother a book. Uh, Voodoo Child was my brother was one of the people that I dedicated it to. And I gave him an inscribed copy at Christmas. And he's like, you know, I don't ever read, but I will, I'm going to read this. (laughs) I've given my dad copies of my books and he's just not a reader. My mom has started to read, but it, for her, she just gets distracted. So she might try audio books and and whatnot. Which you might know somebody that does that. Yeah. Yeah. I might know (laughs) someone. (laughs) But anyways, yeah, it's just I'm I'm always interested to see the dynamics because it is it's very different with everybody. And yeah, but that's it's great that I, I know that at, at some point, any author, any content creator, 
you've got to get to a point where it's not just close friends and family that are reading your stuff, watching your stuff, giving yeah. you feedback. You've got to build fans. You've got to get people outside of your inner circle because and that is hard. Yeah. 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 And it takes time, but also sometimes those are the types of people that will be a little more honest with you in terms of the stuff they don't like or the stuff that doesn't work or the stuff that you could do better at. Now, obviously there are good friends and family who might do that, but I feel like someone who doesn't have that personal relationship might be willing to just say, man, this, this, this was bullshit. This ending you did was bullshit. And And it gives us as content creators, if we're open to it, and hopefully we are, that we can learn from that sort of stuff. Even the I made the mistake early on in uh, the last summer. I was going to be away from Instagram for uh, three or four days, and I like to post content frequently. Um, So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just put the valley out for free for an ebook, and just sit on it. I want to put some pre-planned posts to just. It's going to post while I'm gone. So I don't have to worry about it. And I came back and I had like 6,000 downloads from the Valley. And I was like, oh, well, there's 6,000 copies now floating around there with people that I do not know. I almost guarantee it, you know? Yeah. And I had at the time 60 some odd reviews on the Valley. And now it's 140 maybe. And his majority of those people are all saying the same thing, which made me have to look at it again and go, yeah, there's there's definitely some things I need to adapt and change. Uh, it's all comes down to editing. Like when I released the Valley, I did not have an, an editor that I trusted, but I didn't know what else to do. Um, so I, I used her, and the, the edits were fine because I mean that's just not my cup of tea. So I just kind of read it and went, okay. I I mean I I paid somebody to do it, so it has to be right, right? And then now that it's gotten the hands of way too many people, you know, I now know that. I need to hire a new editor. I need to go back through and make a second edition. And so I got my boy Jay, you know, doing a new edit on it because it needs it. It, it desperately needs some, some, you know, some, some polishing, you know, people don't really complain about the, the story itself. They, the ending has people divide, you know, divided, which I think all my endings will have people divided. Either you're going to like it or you're not going to like it. And I might tweak some things that I think I would rather do differently but the editing that's just needs to get fixed. And that just comes down to people outside of my circle reading it, you know, and I wouldn't have had that otherwise. Like I know damn to hell needs a new editor. I knew that before going into it, but the Valley is the one that gets a lot of attention and it's the one that needs the most work. So I need to go back in there and toughen it up a little bit. Yeah. And that's the beauty I think of indie publishing, especially self-publishing is that we can tweak things we can make them better and move forward yeah that's cool that's that's good that you're open to it and you're making those changes because i think that all all of that will pay dividends in the future yeah okay so before we switch gears and talk about your newest release i've got a fun little instagram listener question sit sit back and i'm i'm gonna paint a little story for you before I get to the actual question. (laughs) Okay, so here it is. Mike, I've locked you in the old library of an abandoned castle, and the shelves are full of your books. Characters from your stories are crawling out of the pages, but it will take some time for them to reach full size. Which characters would you be willing to persuade you to help 
or no, sorry. Which characters would you be willing to persuade to help you and how would you persuade them? That is a, it's a lot to work through. Um, <laughs> I want to know what situation I'm in where somebody's like traps me into a castle. <laughs> like, I'm, I mean, that's cool. I don't, a lot of castles are in Europe and I, I don't see me going there anytime soon, but in this scenario, I'm in a castle and I'm locked there and there's just a lot of my books. Either it's, I only have four books out. So it's either four books in an empty library or just a lot of copies of the same books. So, <laughs> yeah, just tons so, of copies. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, if I were to go through my books and I wouldn't, I think a lot of my characters are probably have better survival instincts than I do. Um, so I'd have to go after some of the weaker characters and try to manipulate them. Like, like Johnny from the Valley, who is, he could be easily manipulated, but if they're also, the question had something like it was, takes a while for them to grow to full form. So do they start as like a miniature person and then like slowly get bigger? Because in that sense, I would just keep the small versions of the people that I think I can manipulate, put them in a pile and then squish the other ones. Like just, I don't want the, I don't want the, <laughs> the problems that the other ones are going to give me squish those ones like a bug and then just wait for these other ones to evolve. I'll give them like little saltine crackers. So they love me. And then, and then manipulate them to get me out. I don't know how I get out. Maybe I would uh, do like the whole prison gag where I'm like, Oh no. Oh, Mike's dying. Oh no. We have to, we have to save him. And then when the person comes in the castle, Johnny jumps out of the rafters with like a, like a, a sheet and then wraps up the prison guard, you know, maybe something like that. I don't know. So it's kind of <laughs> like, it, it's like a Scooby-Doo episode almost. It, I don't I don't see it ending any other way. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then when it comes to the who who is this Instagram person? Who is this Instagram listener? And then you pull off the mask and it's you. It was me all along. Ah! <laughs> perfect, <Yeah>. perfect ending. <laughs> okay, so. Good, good job. There you go. I mean, I think they're, they're your characters. You can kill them if you want. So I'm going to smush them like a bug. Gonna, <laughs> a couple of them I hate. I'm just going to flick them. So <laughs> last month, I read your novella, The House That Burns, which is also the debut story in the ongoing Price Manor series. Damn. Give me, give me a little run through about how this all came about. And since each entry will be written by a different author, did you feel any pressure on making sure the first one was strong? Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, do you want me just to act like you're not part of this? <laughs> like, like, come on. Like, <laughs> there are other people listening besides just me. So, yes. Yeah, like, uh, I don't remember what it was. Um, I think somebody in the group posted a a book that they just read and somebody brought up the fact that there's, it's like part of a series with like that uh, a lot of authors are just doing and it, it, like, they're not connected, but it's like a series of like animals gone crazy or some shit. I don't remember the scenario. And we started talking about it and it, it ended up morphing into a, Hey, let's, let's do our own thing. Like we all like there, you have gloom publishing and then there's all these other, like everybody has their own little label. They put on the back of their book, you know, you know, nerdy wordsmith and all this stuff. And I think we just all, we all came together and decided we wanted to have our own stamp. Like we could include the other stamp, but we also wanted something that says 
we're these are all together like we're all family together we all support these books you know so we had dhc deadline horror collective kind of spawn off that and that was a uh, that was fun to kind of just everybody spitballing throwing ideas at the wall you know nick at the time who eventually became somebody that died he carried an awesome logo and uh we it, it, we just had something that we could all put on the back of our books and then we all got kind of workshopping an idea of like what could we do as a group to kind of you know put on the you know with dhc and the idea eventually morphed into i think it started as an anthology and then it turned into from an anthology to well let's just do a let's each do a book or a novella you know and they're all sequels to each other and then it was really fun. It was like a solid month of us all just throwing shit up the wall and see what stuck. Like, like we, everybody came with their pitches and then somebody pitched, you know, what about a haunted house? And the haunted house is, you know, every entry is going to be somebody else's journey into this haunted house. And I think the very first flaw in that was everybody was kind of like, okay, yeah, but how many books could we get in that before people were like, don't go in that house that's burnt to the ground. So then it evolved into what it is now by finding ways around that. And that was really fun because like I'm used to working in like a little vacuum where I'm like, I have my wife who I bounce ideas off of, you know, and she's like, that's stupid. Don't do that. But we all would throw something out there and we'd be like, okay, well, let's tweak it here. And then we'd pitch something else. And it just morphed into this fun thing where it's like every story, it has hints and it feels like they belong. Like I read Jamie's and I'm like, you can tell it belongs, but Jamie has a different writing style and his characters, they talk differently and everything is different, but the same. Like you can tell they exist together, but on the peripheral, you know, it's not the point of the story. It's, it's, it's just a device for everybody to tell their own version of the story. And I fucking love it. Like I love, I, I read all your guys' books, you know, and I feel like everybody has their own way of writing. And mine is very punchy and i don't spend a lot of time like describing and i don't spend a lot of time using you know the, the, the sources i don't use long words i just go and so mine feels very amateur comparatively because i don't mine's not as polished as a lot of your guys writing is you know i try to pump out you know a couple books a, uh, a year and that requires me to write every night and i don't spend a lot of time when i'm writing making sure that it's elegant you know and if something sounds good, it's because it just sounded good in the moment. And when I was writing it, it was not plotted. It was not reworked. I very rarely go back and polish a sentence, you know? Um, and a lot of you guys, you're as obviously take your time with your craft. And it kind of felt like when it was, when I was accidentally nominated to be the first one to do these books, <laughs> it felt like a lot of fucking pressure because <laughs> like, man, I don't see me being the one to kind of lead this charge and telling the story but it made the most sense when we all broke it down like a lot of these stories don't take place in modern day and we kind of needed that story to catapult the rest of it and needed to explain it and i wanted to put enough mysteries in it that everybody else can kind of have their fun answering but we needed to have a modern day take to, to kickstart it and it made sense and so i went with it it was a lot of pressure though i remember jamie and i talked a lot i threw a lot of things to the group and i'm like give me Easter eggs, give me things that you would like to included. And I, I tried, it was, it was, it was, it was tough. It was, I think it's the most, it was the most fun I've ever had writing one of my books, but it was definitely the most challenging because it, in the back of my head, it was always like, if this doesn't do well, nobody else will. And that 
not okay. Everybody else could do well on their own because they all stand alone. But this would definitely help us all out if the first one does well. So it was definitely a task, a little little bit of pressure. So it is what it is. But it was fun. I enjoyed it, and I definitely have plans to do a sequel. Yeah, it's it has been really fun, and watching it grow, and seeing us get organized, and in terms of our planning. It's interesting because there's a lot of give and take. On one hand, it is organized. There are certain things that need to stay the same. Kind of, yeah, yeah. There, there to be, are yeah, certain consistent. rules that need to be followed in terms of the house and, and whatnot. But at the same time, like you said, we all as authors, we have different styles. We have different yeah. likes. We have different strengths. So the ability from the start, we decided that, you know, hey, this house, it can change its location and it can change the time in which it's located. And so it's sort of a time traveling, geographically moving, haunted house. house. And that is really cool. But then we also decided that the house is going to change how it looks on the inside. But at the same time, there are certain pieces of furniture. There are certain characters, objects that are recurring. And yeah, so, you'll see them consistently. Yeah. And those little Easter eggs, I love it because most franchises do that, whether it's Halloween, yeah. whether it's Star Wars, whether it's the Marvel Universe, there are all of these Easter eggs. And so while a lot of these films are standalones, you can just watch the one movie and you can learn a lot and you can get what's going on. It's fine. But if you have read the others, if you have watched the others in that series, in that universe, then there are things that are going to jump out to you and it's going to be very rewarding. Like, oh, yeah, I remember it's like a little character. treat. Yeah. I remember that. I fucking hated that character. Oh, yeah, that thing sucked. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. I really am looking forward to getting everybody else's. There's a couple in the group that, you know, we haven't announced who's writing, you know, what. I don't think we've announced more than, you know, just Jay and Jamie's. But there are some people's books that they pitched what they're planning on writing. And I am jacked and jealous of some of these books. I'm like, fuck, I wish I had that idea. You know, (laughs) and and that's so fun to be like, you know. Yeah, it's not my idea, but I'm helping develop it. I'm helping, you know, we're all working to brainstorming together. It wouldn't exist unless we had come together as this group. It's so fun. And I definitely am going to play in that that little sandbox again because it has limited op- opportunity to just fucking go nuts, you know? Yeah. And like, fuck, dude, like some of these books that are going to be coming out with this Price Manor series, if they come to fruition, it's going to be sick. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and like yours in particular i was i mean it just it's right up my alley of like the horror movies genre just a small pitch you threw at us and i'm like that's gonna be fun you know so there's gonna be some really cool ones in there i think people are really going to enjoy it especially because mine kind of mine feels like a traditional horn you know it's just a haunted house story and when you see where everything else is going to be going the second the third the fourth the fifth the sixth all the way to like the 10 that we have plotted or whatever they all just go fucking crazy from here and mine becomes the most grounded which is hilarious you know <laughs> My- <laughs> so yeah. it's gonna be fun man yeah anybody that reads them they need to buckle up <laughs> okay so let's get a little more specific here i'd like to discuss a few quotes from your story 
And the first is a quote from one of your characters. Here's the quote. This is the kind of house that has that old money feel. Like, you know, whatever they did to buy this house, someone else suffered. From the start, Mike, you made it clear that you wouldn't simply shy away from social justice issues. And so it makes me it makes me want to ask this question. What is it about the supernatural horror genre that makes it such a good medium for having tough conversations? Damn, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, when I, I wrote that and I, I the original manuscript actually had a lot more in it that, uh, you know, uh, Jay and I talked about and we took out is because I don't think I did it justice. You know, it was almost too fast and it, it was just brushed over. Um, we, we did take away a lot of the stuff that I thought that originally I intended to throw some more of that idea. And we, we took it out and it is what it is. I, I could probably play with it more in the future, but I understood and he had a good point. So I needed to get rid of it, but we kept particularly that one in because the, the horror genre itself does lend itself to if you're watching the horror, you're already, you're already opening yourself up to anything. And then you throw that inside there and you have to look at it and realize like, man, like there is a lot of fucking horror in this world. Like we live in a place where there is real life horror that has happened to actual people. And like, this is all fictional, but real shit like this, you know, injustice and just people have lived horrible lives at the hands of others just because of racial injustice. And it, and I think that horror itself really lends itself to just people open your eyes and kind of look around for a minute. And I, I'm really excited that I live in a time where there are new filmmakers out there, new storytellers that are really saying like, there's more to horror than white people getting chased, you know, and like fucking get out and all these great movies, you know, the new Candyman, really even the older Candyman, really, but the new Candyman in particular fuck dude like they are they're hitting every single note that i i just i'm so excited to see because i am of hispanic roots and my children are they are so hispanic you know and i've seen firsthand just really how being not entirely white how 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 that how my kids are treated differently um i i legitimately have just been they don't know because I'm, I'm a little more white than my kids at times they've, they've people have assumed that they weren't my kids and have made off collar remarks about my, uh, you know, about my kids. And I was just like, you don't even know them. You don't know them. You don't know their story. You don't know anything besides what you're seeing in the moment. And it, it just fucking hurts, man. It sucks. And I live in a small shitty town where majority of people are white and I can just bigger places where more people and like, there's just more opportunity for just, awful things i mean it's just there's it's still out there and i think that it's not really it's brushed aside a lot and i think that horror is a great place to talk about you know the stuff that you don't want people don't want thrown in their face you know i mean if if it happens and it's not your movie then i guess don't watch it but i just love what's happening right now so hopefully that answers some of it yeah it does and i just recently finished reading Queen of the Cicadas by V. Castro. And I don't know if you saw my review that I posted about that, but I was gushing over it. And one of the things that really hit me was this sort of 
social justice aspect, this ugly truth that she revealed about being a Latina woman in America and some of the stuff that was dealt with, but then also just some of the misogyny that was dealt with in other times in countries outside of America. Yeah. And so the world is actually bigger, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it was just really interesting for me to read those sorts of things and to be able to step into that world and get a glimpse of things that I personally don't experience on a day-to-day basis and to learn some empathy and to question maybe some of my own thoughts or actions in the past and hopefully get better about them in the future. And so, like you said, it is, it's important that these other stories are shared as well. The horror genre isn't a white man's genre or a white yeah. woman's genre. The the horror genre is for everybody. Fear is one of those emotions that everybody experiences. It's universal, you know? Yeah, it's universal. And some of the fears are the same, but then some of them are very different. And so like what what you were saying with, with, with your children growing up, having a little bit of a darker skin tone, you're even able to see that just because you yourself are Hispanic, but your skin is lighter, that you might not deal with some of the same bullshit that they will just because yeah. their skin's a little bit darker shade. Yeah, and like... Uh, and that's scary. Yeah, like the last couple of years in particular, man, like I love my wife. She's my best friend. She is fucking pale. You know, she is, a, she is so white, you know? And as the last couple of years has gone down, I'm really proud of her. She, when, when this, all this stuff started first going down with the... the all the fucking protests and all that stuff. She at first was, she didn't see it. You know, she, she didn't never, she's never experienced that kind of stuff. So she Mm -hmm. was kind of like, she reached out to everybody she could and said, why is this important? Teach me. I want to know, you know, I don't want to just see what I see on the news. I don't want to see, I don't want to read anything that many posted on Facebook. Tell me why this should be important. And she learned and she learned and she, we went down, there was protests in our own town, you know, and, in our small hick town, that's just people aren't, it's not going to fly. People do not support that idea. And so we drove it down there and we, we had a talk with my kids, our kids. And we said, here's why this is important. And here's, here's why you're literally seeing a movement, hopefully. And, you know, like you are too young to see this and ex- you don't know what you've experienced, but it's there. And my wife is definitely like taking the charge and she's made our own house like the kids openly talk about race, openly talk about why it's not important just to say we don't see color. You know, in our house, we don't see color because it is important. That is somebody's identity. And you don't judge somebody by it, but you acknowledge that that is there and that is their color is important. And you don't just say everybody's the same because they're not. And we all have, it makes us special, really. And it's it's really interesting. My kids gone from, you know, two or three years ago where they're just like, I don't know, my skin's a little darker than dad, I guess, you know. My skin is ridiculously darker than my own mom. Like, I don't know. But uh, when it comes down to it, now they, they identify with it and they, they can see the, the own bullshit they see within their school. Because my son's now in junior high and he's seeing some of the stuff they didn't see, you know, in the last prior years mm. in elementary school. But he's starting to see some of this. And it's really important that he knows to be, A, like confident and strong 
and know to stand up for the person that, you know, feels like is on the wrong side of it. You know, you don't want to be the wrong side of this, of this, this point. And, you know, my daughters and they're all seeing my, my, their older brother kind of, you know, guide them themselves, you know, and we're trying to push it. It's really difficult time to be alive, but it's also really important that you know where you stand. You know, it's been, it's been, it's been a thing, man. But yeah, when I wrote the book, it just, I think somebody did mention in the group we're describing the actual house, you know, and someone said plantation esque, you know, and that's what I really had visually in my head Mm. and like, how the fuck would this house exist? And we don't, we talked about like where it came from and all that stuff, but like, ultimately speaking, like you cannot tell me that, that this house would not have existed without somebody else, not just one particular person, but a, 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 a unit of people suffering for this house to exist in more ways than once and went more ways than one in all reality, you know, it's, it, it but it's, it, I felt like that was the line we really kept in there opposed to some of the other stuff I had inside there. And I felt like it just, it needed to be in there. And Jay agreed, you know, I'm now starting to like, I think you read damn to hell, you read the Valley and house on Harlan. They were predominantly white male or white female. I have in the Valley, the main character is a female, but I set it up for the first half of the book. You think that the lead's a male, you know, and then I swap, I, you know, I kind of turn that on its head and it's actually a female, but I've all, I've had predominantly male or female, but white characters. And now with price manner, I've introduced some black characters, some, some darker skin characters. And then in the new book I'm writing, I have, I have, you know, I have gay characters and I have, I, I want to, I don't want to be part of the problem. I, I know there's so much more. So I, I'm, the Valley and Damn to Hell are going to sit kind of isolated where they're kind of like, yeah, that's a white character. I'm not going to go back and just change a character. It just, it, but moving forward, I'm going to introduce more colors. I'm going to introduce more like uh, sexuality, some more thoughts, some more. The world is not this little fucking box where it's just one isolated thing. It, it's so much bigger and we need to have that. It's important to have, you know, like a, a gay character who's, and I think like, just because a gay character, it can literally be a character, just a person, you know, a, a, the sexual identity does not have to be thrown in every single page. Because from, from what I talk and when I talk to my friends who are, you know, they, they, they identify a certain way, like, they're like, yeah, that's part of who I am. But it's not every sentence I'm spitting out of my mouth, you know, yeah. I'm an average fucking person. And I think that's important to have, you know, one of my characters is he is, he is gay and he has a husband and it's not beating you down. It's like legitimately like they exist together because they are functioning humans. You know, they legitimately, they are more than just that identity. And it, it, it's annoying when I see it in media where it's like a gay character is just, that's the only characteristic about the character. Like it's so one dimensional. And so, you know, they have thoughts and feelings and, you know, goals and a family and it just fucking it's ridiculous. And I love the horror genre is going away from that old school mentality. And you see these things happening, you know, it's really cool. It's really exciting. And I, I really want more people to kind of jump on board. You know, I was talking to this publisher who was talking about like, all they want to do right now is find more than just a white male author, you know, and they want to go out there and they're actively searching for a, a good, you know, female author, a good colored, a good, you know, you know, identifies a different gender, all and just just to show the world that there's more. And I fucking love that. It's a great time for horror in general. Yeah. That I'm, was a tangent I did not expect, by the way. No, no, that's great. <laughs> I'm personally looking forward to a future episode 
of Into the Gloom because I'll be talking about diversity and horror with Christine and uh, Christine Germain. And I'm just so excited because I, I believe that diversity is important. And I believe that yeah. these conversations are very important. And I love that we are able to have them so freely and openly within the horror genre. So yeah, yeah that's, that's great. That's great. I love yeah, that's everything gonna be a good episode. And honestly, in the same vein, this leads us to another quote from your book, because in your first Price Manor novella, you created this guy. His name is Steven. And it's clear from the start that he's quite the character. And at one point, you describe him in this way. Here's the quote. He sat in the same booth every day, leaning over and interrupting the locals as they ate, plugging the truth into their ears whenever possible. And I, when I read this, I was just like, I know that guy. So I've got to ask you, Mike, is, <laughs> is Steven based on someone that you've met in life? It, it's, a, it's a fucking pool of people, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's funny, Steven, uh, the names, the, the character's name, Steven and his last name, I cannot pronounce. Uh, he was one of the guys that won back in House in Harlan giveaway. I was doing uh, book giveaways and character name giveaways, and he won the okay. character name. And I already had this character. I wanted to have a conspiracy character in this book. And I had to ask him, I'm like, dude, I could change. I could save your name for a different character in a different book. But then I pitched him this character and I'm like, or you can have this character. Like, do you want this to be tacked onto your name? And he's like, have fun with it, man. It's, it's totally fine. So I did. I, I mean, I wouldn't want my name associated with this character, but he did. So we're good. But uh, <laughs> no, nah, man, I live in a military town. Okay. And I am also in the military and I will be, you know, if I'm in my uniform and I have to say I'm leaving, leaving work, I have to make a quick stop at Walmart, grab some milk for the baby or whatever. I run in there real quick. It's not uncommon for me to run into somebody in the town that is like, you're, you're in the military. Yeah. Obviously for my apparel, you know, it's like, and they're, they're like, so um, is it true that they're fucking poisoning us with their fumes? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it goes so much deeper. Like there's so many crazy people in this world, but like I had this one guy, who, man, chemtrails. Exactly. So there's this one particular instant that I think kind of created this character for me. I was at the store just wanting to get the hell out of there. And this guy approached me and he's like, so you work with the jets? And I'm like, maybe I do. And he's like, so you can tell me, I won't tell anybody, but I need to know the truth. Are these little black boxes real? And I'm like, yes, yes, they are. <laughs> and he's like, this is exactly what we want to hear. He was, if I told him, no, dude, you're fucking high. He was not going to buy into it. Yeah. So why not just fucking want to have some fun with them? And he's just like, they are. And I'm like, yep, little black boxes. And he's like, he's like, how do they work? And I'm like, I don't know how they work. They're so, they're, they're governmentally controlled. We don't even know. All we know, we have to dump this liquid that we don't even know what the liquid is into it. We dump it into it before the jet starts up. And then it flies over the town, man. If you're outside, if you're not wearing a mask, you're an idiot. I'm like, I'm leaving the store and I'm still wearing my mask because I don't trust what's out there in the air and everything. And just the guy's eyes light up because you know that he thought that regardless. Regardless if I told him, dude, I've been inside that jet. I've been inside it. I've, I've been in there with the engines taken out. I've seen every component of this jet. 
there's no little box developing these chemtrails. He was going to look at me and be like, yeah, call bullshit. You're part of the problem. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I don't give a shit. Dude, think what you don't think. So I'm going to yeah. go out on a limb and say that this is not the first podcast that this specific conversation has been on. <laughs> He's probably going on every conspiracy podcast he can get on and telling this story. Man, this guy, he works for the military, man. And he told me. <laughs> he straight up told me, man. No, nah, it is. But that's just part of the town. Like, legitimately, I have people all the time tell me that there's a secret base underneath my own base. Like, my little base that we work at for the Air Force, there's a base underneath it with secret jets. And that's what you hear at night of these secret jets taking off. And there's a whole entire community underneath it. And I'm just like, I'm, how did you know this? How, who told you this? Because we need to kill them. They're letting the secret out. Like, <laughs> whatever, dude. Believe what you're going to believe. So I wanted to create a character that was really into conspiracy, but also like, that's what his life was. You know, I yeah. wanted this character that he saw the fire and he didn't think, yeah, shit's gone crazy the last couple of years. There's fires you know it's inevitable he thinks there's more to it and he's he's dedicated to find the answers and if you notice in the story like he's into it he's into it he's going to find the answers he's going to find the answers and then he just doesn't because he just like there's a point where that that storyline is just dropped and that was on purpose because there's a point for this character where he realizes that like i just need to survive like this there's clearly i'm in over my head and the part where, and this is spoilers for the book, and I assume that either anybody that's bought the book plans on reading it or has read it and listened to your podcast, or maybe if they don't want a spoiler, then you know, press mute for a moment or fast forward 30 seconds. But there's a part where this character is stuck in a room with mannequins, right? And it really was himself kind of fighting that idea that everybody's controlled. You know, there's always somebody behind there and controlling it behind the curtain, you know? Like we're all puppets and he had to fight that to get out. He had to fight it to survive. And if you read it, he doesn't, he doesn't get, he does. He's not the reason that he gets out. You know, he actually gets defeated by his own, his own, you know, conspiracy theories and his own problems with like everything's controlled and we're all puppets and all this stuff. And he's has to be saved by somebody else. He's pulled out of it. He never actually gets that freedom of, of defeating his own demons. And just because I didn't think he had to, you know, he does not have to, uh, my, my, my experience with people that are kind of in this mindset is you're not going to change their mind. Yeah. You can show them all the evidence you have. You're not going to change their mind. And that's kind of what that was kind of saying is like, he's not going to get out there on his own, but he's also not, he, he has to figure it out his own really though. Somebody had to save him. So he's still stuck in that mindset. So I don't know. I thought it was fun. The character was fun for me. And especially because I love taking a character that on paper you should hate. Yeah, he's annoying. I have a lot of people tell me that that was their least favorite character of the book for the first third of the book. Yeah. But then that kind of flips at a point where he becomes fun. And I like taking somebody, you know, you're supposed to hate. And by the end of it, actually care for this character a little bit, you know. So hopefully by the end of the book, people realize that he's more than just what he was at the beginning because he actually is. He has grown. He's changed, you know. But anyways, yeah, that was a mesh of so many people that I know in my life, including family members and people on my Facebook, you know? Yep. So, yeah, I, I know those people too. <laughs> <laughs> and then about a third of the way into the book, one of your female characters finds herself in a long hallway. And you wrote this describing that 
Becky tried not to look, but couldn't help herself. Now, each room was occupied by a guest, someone different in each one. And then you go on to describe some of these occupants. There's an old man, there's a group of kids, there's a beautiful lady, an overweight man. Your story ends, though, and we still don't know who all these people are. And so I've got to ask, is this something that we can look forward to in future installments of the Price Manor series? So... I put those, when I was writing it, they were just filler. Like those rooms were actually vacant at first. I, I put I put like a little note in there for me to come back on the next draft and be like, put people inside these rooms. You know, I, I didn't actually have anybody in those rooms for a long time. And when I came back and went through that draft and I started populating these rooms, I wanted to put, just every room was a little different, you know? And I wanted to show that by the, the characters, but also show that the room itself. But I don't have plans for every one of those characters. And I love that this book, this series is going to be written by so many different authors. I would love for somebody, you or Jay or fucking anybody else that I, we have not announced, you know, to hit me up and say, hey, this character in this room, are we doing anything with him? And I, and I could be like, yeah, I plan on using him for my follow up or straight up being like, no, have fun with them. And so they can live in somebody else's book, you know, and then that becomes something that exists in their own mind that I just kind of populated, you know. I wanted to populate this house with, you know, there's like several different type of entities, different type of ghosts, and they have different abilities. And I wanted anybody to take from this kind of toy box and play with it in their own. And that was kind of what I was really trying to do when writing it was throw everything there. And if you want to introduce something else to it, go ahead. But in the same vein, I have all these characters that just were not explained, were not answered because they, anybody else can pick them up where I started and just go with it, you know? And so yeah, those some of those characters I have I have an idea for I think only two of those rooms in a later book. Anybody can come in there and work with them. I think that'll be so much fun, you know. See yeah. where somebody else takes these characters. That's cool. And I'm just going to go ahead and answer a question that I'd imagine some people have and that's where the name Price Manor came from. And <laughs> so we can just out her Haley Newland has been part of these discussions and most people, if you know Haley, you know that she is... She has an obscene obsession. Yeah, an obscene obsession (laughs) with one man named Vincent Price. And so the Price in Price Manor is an ode to one of the great masters of horror, Vincent Price. Yeah, I remember when we were talking about we. It was really late in the game when we talked about actually naming the house. Yeah, you know, like we 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 got we waited way too long before we actually named it. <laughs> and everybody, we were suggesting things. We're like, I don't want it to be generic. I don't. I want it to be, you know, almost iconic. We want it to stand alone, all that stuff. And we're throwing names out, and then Haley throws like, I love Vincent Price. We should call it Price Banner. And everybody's like, Okay, yeah, good enough. Let's do that. Like, it, there was no hesitation. She said it, and it clicked, and it was fun. And it, especially as a horror fan, it kind of has an extra dimension of fun to it. You know, it's an Easter egg that's so blatantly there. Like it's on the fucking title. It's Price Manor. And if you're any type of horror fan, that's the first thing you're going to come to. And it, it, by no means are we comparing ourselves to, you know, Vincent Price. And we're not saying any, none of these stories have really anything to do with it. I'm sure Haley will throw some fucking Easter eggs in there, but it's, it's still kind of like, hey, we love this genre. We love what it represents. We love the history of the genre. And I fucking love it. I think it's, it was a smart move because some of the names that we were, were 
workshopping worked and some of them I really liked, but it wasn't until she suggested that I'm like, duh. Yeah. That's obviously the name like that. That makes sense. So yeah, it's I a love that it's a name. manner. So do what? I love that. It's a manner, you know, yeah. it just sounds so important. Yeah. So, yeah. I also, I loved how at the end of your book, there's a little sneak peek of the next two installments. The covers are actually yeah. there, but Jamie Stewart is released actually at the time of this podcast once it's gone live the book is out there it's entitled yeah, yeah. the house the house that bleeds and so that came it's february and the next month is march and that's when we yeah. get jay alexander <laughs> yeah it's like i'm just i'm just going through the calendar in case you didn't know what month is next <laughs> but in march jay alexander is releasing the house that falls that falls yeah and so you you included those in the back end, little little sneak peeks and the covers of those books. Is there anything that you can tell us about those stories as they connect to the Price Manor ethos? Yeah, like if you look at the spine on House Manor, uh, the, sorry, Price Manor, it says book one, you know, and mm -hmm. that's because there's going to be a two and a three and yada, yada, yada and going forth. But uh, one thing we all discussed was like, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to just tell people like without that, without us actually directly telling people for them to know that these, this is going to be a series written by different authors. You know, I could, we could say it on Instagram. We can say it on podcasts. We could talk to a billion people, but like the average, the average reader that's going to find it on Amazon, they're not going to know, you know, they're just not going to know. They, 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 they might say it in our description on the actual product page, but they're going to need to, pick up the book themselves to figure that out. And we need to show them that there's going to be more and it's going to be written by somebody else. And that made the most sense just to throw those covers on the back of it and be like, if you did not know here, the fuck it is. Two is coming. Three is coming. Here's who's writing it. Here's the gorgeous cover. And it, it was just really important for us to kind of throw that in your face because that's what I think makes this so fun is just everybody else is playing along, you know, but if you don't know, then it, you know, if you assume that I'm supposed to write book two and you see Jamie's book and you're like, okay, well, they're not, I mean, like you're going to be so confused if you don't know that this is, this is the idea yeah. we're, we're leading this together. You know, it's a charge together. And so we needed to kind of make sure that was upfront and obvious, you know? And I really hope that something that you just said comes true. I hope that we are able to talk to a billion people about this series. Um Billion, <laughs> man, that's so much words. <laughs> and even even if five percent of those billion go out and buy it, oh man, that's going to be a <laughs> successful oh, series. Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to be working in a garage anymore. I'll be working in a salt <laughs> manor. So <laughs> I won't have to narrate audiobooks in my bathroom. <laughs> oh, sick! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, before we move away from your writing, I was wondering. Are there any other subgenres that you'd like to wade into at some point in the future? I've only written at this point supernatural, like even House on Harlan. I definitely try to sell that book as it was a haunted house story. And then if you've read House on Harlan, you realize way too late that it's not a haunted house story. And it's still supernatural, though. But 
and then obviously Price Manor is straight up a haunted house story. You know, it's straight up supernatural. And I love, fucking love that subgenre of that genre of horror itself. But I don't want to just write ghost stories. And uh, I definitely have plans to write uh, Bigfoot horror. I want to write some kind of more just emotional horror. Uh, I have a slasher I want to write. There's just, I don't want to just be pegged down as a only write ghost stuff, but it is the most fun to play with. That's why I think a lot of my ideas happen to lean towards ghosts and spooky, spooky. But uh, no, I definitely want to write a good Bigfoot horror and a good alien horror. Um, uh, just there's so much stuff out there. It just would be kind of a shame just to kind of spend whatever, however long my writing career is, whether it's only another year or five years or fuck, who knows? It would be a shame if I've only done supernatural. I really want to test the waters a little bit, you know. Anybody that is listening to this, if you are friends with Caleb, aka the bookie man on Instagram, go right now and DM him and say, Hey, Caleb. Mike is going, Mike Salt is going to be writing a cryptid novel and you're going to, need to check it out. <laughs> Dude, I, I can't wait to write my Bigfoot story. Like it's going to be a challenge. I was talking to my wife about it last night. Um, my Bigfoot, I think the next story I am going to work on, I have plans for the Valley, Damn to Hell, House on Harlan. That's all in one universe. If you've read all three of those books, they all have like little tie-ins to let you know that they all exist together. Mm-hmm. And I have book four planned, book five, all the way to book nine in this little series uh, as, as its own standalone universe. And all the characters are going to kind of mingle in and out and you don't have to read them for the most part. They're all going to be very standalone, but by the ninth one, it's going to be like, uh, like end game for Avengers where you, you before, maybe you're good just watching whatever pick and piece you wanted, but you need to watch the majority of them to understand and love end game. And that's really the plan by book nine to have, like everything's kind of standalone, but if you've read it, you might you read them all. You're going to get a bigger picture for this ninth one. But if you've read none of them, this ninth one will mean nothing to you, you know, <laughs> but this Bigfoot one is besides price manor, which is outside of that, the little universe I've created. I've wanted to take a break before I go back into that universe with yeah. like a, with my next one, which is going to be uh, like Hill house meets the descent. It's going to be a haunted ass fucking cave. So that's going to be the next one after the uh, yes. house in Harlan, right? But the one I want to kind of take a step back and step away from that universe for a moment is I'm going to do a Bigfoot horror. And I'm so fucking excited. Like, I love Bigfoot. I love cryptids. I love, I, I, I spend way too much time as a grown ass man on Wikipedia, on just listening to cryptid podcasts, just being like, I don't know, man. Maybe there is a giant moth that just follows people. I don't fucking know. Who's to say, you know? And I fucking love that. So I want to write a couple cryptids. And I, Bigfoot is my homie. I'm from you know Pacific Northwest. You know, my parents have stories of being out in the woods and seeing Bigfoot. You know, and like local people around here, if you just bring up the subject, they'll have their own opinions or their own stories. And I've I've spent so much time in the woods just being like, is that a Bigfoot? No, nah, that's just a really big bush. Is that a Bigfoot? No, nah, that's just a deer, man. Is that a Bigfoot? No, nah, that's just a really hairy guy. I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, so. I'll find Bigfoot someday. I don't necessarily think he exists. I, I mean, he's probably not real. The, the part of my brain that says, like, scientifically and logically, Bigfoot doesn't exist. It, get, it gets beat down by the part of my brain that's like, fuck you. Bigfoot is very real. And he very much is hangs out Harry the Henderson style 
Like I'm a tree. You don't even notice me. I'm, I'm right in front of your face, but I'm a fucking tree. I don't even fucking move, you know? So I want Bigfoot to be real, but my wife and I have been talking because I don't know how to write it. Like, how do you make a scary Bigfoot book? You know, I don't know yet. And I'm, I'm really excited to see how I, how I get there, but I, I want to have one there to be obviously blood and gore and spooks and jumps. And I want to trick my audience, but I don't know how I'm going to get there yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. We'll see. Yeah, you're, we'll see. You're a Bigfoot agnostic, <laughs> but you want to believe. You want I will, to make believe. me believe, please. I'm just waiting for the day for some kind of actual scientific proof to exist. And then I could just be like, yep, yep, I knew all along. I've always believed. There is never <laughs> a shred of doubt. Like I have a Bigfoot, I have two Bigfoot tattoos on me. I love Bigfoot. I love the guy. So let's, let's make him real. Like I swear if I, hypothetically die and there's a heaven and I go there and then Jesus or God or whoever's like, Hey bro, I can, one question, what do you got? I'll answer it for you. And you'll know I'm going to waste it on is Bigfoot real. I absolutely know that no hesitation. I could ask like JFK, what, you know, what's up with that? Or I could ask, you know, like, Hey, like does my family line live to be happy? Like are my kids happy or do my grandkids, they, are they happy? I'm going to be like, no hesitation. Be like, Bigfoot, let me know. How real is he? Because I know he's a little bit real. <laughs> There's, he's a little bit real. How real is this motherfucker? And uh, I think that whoever you know, answers the questions, will be like, that's the one. That's, that's where you're landing. And be like, don't beat around the bush. Let's get there already. So, and he's going to tell me yes and inevitably. So. There's your story idea, man. You, you die, you go to heaven. God says Bigfoot's real. And then you say, I don't believe you. And then so God gives you back your life so that you can go. And so it's just this, it's a journey to try to find Bigfoot. <laughs> then when you find him, he's terrifying. And yeah, I won't, I won't spoil the ending, but we'll talk after. <laughs> yeah. uh, I see him more of a misunderstood, you know, he's hanging out in a cave. And he's just like, I'm fine. Like, everybody has the wrong depiction of me. I love reading. I have a library of books. I, I like putting on a robe next to a fire and reading. And I'm like, Bigfoot, you're, you're a smart man. Good for you. You're well educated. He's like, I've got, a, I've got an education. I went to Tree University. We're good, man. So, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. No, cryptids, I mean, they, it's, it's such a vast topic. And there, there is so much. You want to talk about diversity. I mean, <laughs> every country, every country has their cryptid tales, and usually there are yeah. a lot of them. And so there's also there's a big audience out there for them, man. So I think you should write it. And it's something for me, too. I've always been fascinated. I remember I first became fascinated with cryptids when I learned about Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster when I was in third grade. And then my <laughs> my freshman year in high school the first research paper I ever wrote in a high school English class was on the Loch Ness Monster. The second one was on Men in Black. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've been in love with just the idea, the possibility of cryptids for a long time. I actually, in Stories with Horror and Heart, Volume 3, I have a short story in there called Legend Has It, and it's my own little riff on a cryptid tale. And oh, so, yeah, man, you, sh you should write it. You should definitely write that, bro. There, there's an audience out there for it as well. And here's the thing, like when it comes down to it, 
we need as independent authors, indie authors, even if you're on the small press, whatever it is, if you're not with the top five, you know, you need to find your audience and you need to, you need to like, you need to market yourself. You have to, there's so much more to being an indie author than just, you know, writing and all that stuff. Like, but that's part of why we created this group in the first place to be like, Hey, I'm struggling in this area. How anybody have advice and all that stuff, but you need to write for, you need, there has to be an audience. If there's not an audience, no one's going to read it. And that really sucks sometimes because legitimately I feel like write what you know, write what you love, you know, and you have to go find that audience. They exist, write what you love, find, and then go find them, you know? And that's where it comes down to it is I know there's an audience for cryptid. There's a market for horror cryptid. I don't know it because I've been spending so much time in the spooky supernatural world, but they're there somewhere and I'll find them. But it's really about, I love Bigfoot. I love the idea of it. I love the idea of writing a horror Bigfoot. So I'm going to write that first and then do the legwork afterwards and find the people that are interested, you know? And that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. My wife straight up told me, she's like, this might be my least favorite book you write. And I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> like, I, like, I understand it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I'm not writing it for anybody but myself. You know, when you go in to write a book, like you wrote fucking a book about houseplant. Like, come on. Like when you write a potted plant as a killer, like you're writing that for yourself. You, you, yeah. you have an idea and you're having fun with it and you find your market afterwards. If you're not having fun with it and don't know why you're doing it, it's not going to show in the work, you know? You have to love it and nurture it and water it and kill a plant sometimes like the one I see behind you. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like you really have to care about what you're writing. Otherwise it shows, you know, and yeah, there it is. Yep. Here's uh here's the dead. Oh it, my God. <laughs> the bas- it was, a, it was a basil plant. Um, <laughs> what actually happened to it was I put it out on the back porch one day to let it get a little bit of sun and then I forgot about it. And we had a freeze that night and it never recovered. Dude. Yeah. My, my kid came home when he was in third grade with a cabbage like that they planted in his classroom. Like everybody got to bring home their, their little vegetable. And he had a cabbage and we kept that motherfucker alive for two years. Like and it was in a small potted plant. And I kept Googling like, how long should cabbages exist? Like they should die. Right. And it just kept living and we would just water it and i would talk to it and be like hey buddy like how you doing today and water my little cabbage plant with my son and then like my wife put it outside and we she forgot about it and it died it got eaten by the the, the frost and it just it was really sad my son and i were like dude we had a cabbage plant alive for two fucking years and you killed it in a second like (laughs) (laughs) no but no like when it comes down to it like write what you love and then find your audience. And that's the hard part is going out there and finding those people that want to read it, you know? And like, I, I tell people, it's like, it's really tricking people into reading it. You know, like they don't know you, you should trust me. Like, like that's really hard. And it's taken me a long time to get people to buy into like, I like Mike from what I've seen. So I'm going to give his books a chance, you know? And so I need to find those same people that are like, generally speaking, they like my, my supernatural, but like, Hey, you might like this too. You know, maybe it'll surprise you. Or maybe I'll trick them into thinking it's supernatural and then pull the rug out from under them. I haven't decided yet. So <laughs> and you just laugh all the way to the bank. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see. But yeah, Bigfoot, man. That's 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 the question there. I'm gonna write so many Bigfoot stories. All right. Do it. Do it. 
it is now come time that time that happens in every into the gloom interview we talk about star wars <laughs> we already did that man <laughs> already checked that box Good. <laughs> no i've got to take you to the carpenter's shed you you know what's coming if you, you you've listened yeah, to other episodes so you know what's coming and i'm just i, I just want to ask you simply what is your favorite john carpenter movie and why i've thought about this like when we just when we discussed we're, i was gonna be on the podcast months ago i didn't know this was gonna be part a segment you know and then as it's progressed and i started listening to it i'm like oh shit so i need to i need to be prepared <laughs> and so i've gone back and forth and it, there's two movies I've gone back and forth with, and there's one that is the obvious choice. The one that should be my favorite. And I should be talking about it a hundred percent because I, it's like one of my top 10 favorite movies and I should, that should be the one I talk about, but it's not going to be, I'm going to talk about vampires because it is balls to the wall crazy. And I watched that during the, the, when it first came out and I was stupid and young and I thought it was the coolest movie ever. Like, but now on rewatch Vampires, it doesn't hold up. But like the little nostalgia part of my brain still loves it. And it is so stupid. And I fucking love John Carpenter's Vampires. It is completely underrated. I just love it. And I bet you, you didn't think that's what it was going to come to. So No, I didn't. And <laughs> we were talking before we started this. And you had mentioned that you're halfway through the episode eight with Christopher Badcock. So you don't know yet, but at the end, that movie gets brought up and I disappointed Christopher because I haven't seen that. Ever seen it? I haven't seen it. Seen it. Oh my God. That's hilarious. That's what you guys talked about that because I feel like nobody ever talks about it. It's such a stupid movie, but that opening scene where they're hunting vampires, fucking great. Like I plan on writing a vampire graphic novel someday. And it is all inspired by John Carpenter's vampire. Like it is that's stupid, awesome. but yeah, John Carpenter's vampire. Um, and obviously um, the thing would be the obvious choice that I'm obsessed with. Like, come on, it's the thing. So I, I couldn't have picked that one because I think vampires, I didn't watch a thing until I was 25. Mm. It's somehow just, I've avoided it majority of my life. Yeah. And then when I watch it, I'm like, Oh, this is fucking brilliant. But Vampires has been with me since I was like, you know, eight years old or whatever, you know, and I watched it on repeat so many times. It's just it's a stupid good movie. And it's actually no, it's just a stupid movie, but it, it, it's it is it's what it is. I, I just love it. All right, Mike. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to ask you to slip off your boxing gloves for a minute because I need to lead you by the hand to the King's Corner. And I'm going to ask you, Mike Salt, what is your favorite Stephen King book? And also, which one is your least favorite? All right. This might come as a shock, but I've never read a Stephen King book. Whoa. No, I'm joking. Oh, I was was like, I am shocked. (laughs) No, no. I thought that'd be fun. Uh, (laughs) Who the fuck hasn't read a Stephen King book? I think (laughs) I actually, when I was younger, I was a giant fucking nerd. Like I only read comic books and then like I have stacks and boxes of comic books that my kids now get to enjoy. Mm. And like we're talking like DC Marvel image and then like a lot of indie press stuff. And my very first published work was actually a comic book 
And that was, I thought I was gonna be a comic book writer for a real long time. Wow. Um, and then I realized that industry is really hard and really, really lame. And like so much, it's so political. And I'm just not into it. But yeah, I have a, a short story in a, uh, a published, it's a horror uh, sci-fi story. It's fun. But um, I really was into uh, Animorphs growing up and I was terrified of fucking goosebumps. I had like three or four, my best friend had every goosebump book and he read them all. And I was like, I'm all about this Animorphs. It's just like kids fighting aliens and they turn into animals. And I wouldn't read Goosebumps because they're too scary for me. And I loved horror. I would watch scary movies, but like R.L. Stein would get in my head, man. And I couldn't read his books. So like actually my goal um, for this year is to read the first 25 Goosebumps. And I want to, I want to find them in the store, like at like a used bookstore, pick it up and just read the first 25 because I just never did. And I feel like I could have fun with it. But um, yeah, so my first actual, actual horror book I read was The Dark Half. So, and that one really kind of made me go like, oh, so this is horror. This is what it should be, right? And then since then, you know, as anybody else does, I just went on a fucking tirade and just fucking read anything I could. And I don't tend to read really long books that right now, um, like when I was younger, I had spare time, but like if it's over 600 pages, I just can't, I don't have the time to dedicate to one book. You know, I have four kids, full-time job. I just can't. So I tend to read it shorter books, but if there's a good Stephen King book out, I don't care how long it is. I'll probably read it. No, the, my favorite of all time was the one that I didn't think I would like. It was legitimately the one that I avoided for a real long time. And it's the long walk. That mm. is my favorite period. Like a running man is like a close second, but I absolutely love the long walk. It is such a, a brutal story. And it's just so fucking good. I recommend that to anybody. Like it's not a horror book per se. I mean, it has trauma and it has tragedy and it is like horrific what these kids go through, but it's not horror in the sense that you would originally imagine. You know, I love the long walk. Yeah. So, so you love the long walk and the running man. I, I, and dark half, I guess you liked, you liked the mask. Bachman, right? Yeah. You, that you <laughs> yeah. Would put on as, as Bachman. Yeah. I mean, thinner. I like thinner. Yeah, I me too. started, I started rage and I just couldn't, it wasn't that one. And, um, what is the other one? Uh, it's part of that, the Bachman books. It's this, um, uh, road oh, man, work. I, thank you. I couldn't get in that one either. Yeah, those two, whatever. But yeah, a lot of the other Bachman work I really like. I like that, uh, the long walk. And it was, you know, you, you, as a nerd, you go back and you read why Bachman books exist and everything. And it was, I mean, it's interesting. It's fun. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not the same as a lot of Stephen King's work. And you can just, there are a lot of, a lot of the works are from when he was really young and it just, it's cool. I really enjoy them. So you you didn't you did not finish you DNF'd Rage would would you count that as your least favorite King book then maybe that was that was that one was I but the thing is I I think it was my mindset when I was reading it you know because you know you've heard all the stories about it you know he took it Stephen King took it off the shelves he won't let it exist anymore you know if you can get it it's only in the Bachman books and you're just not going to get it again like it's it, when you find it, it's like, it's a gem. You know, I have, I know friends that actually have the original rage, you know, and I'm so jealous that they own it. And I have the Bachman book that has it in it and I'm going to read it. I think that when I read it, I was expecting something else, mm. you know, 
And I was definitely uh, not expecting what it was. I, and I know that going there with a fresh mindset, I will probably enjoy it. Um, I think the one that I, I would definitely say is my least favorite would be the one that I thought I was going to be the most excited for, which was Cell. Mm, yeah. I think that was the one. Um, maybe. I don't know. Look at the shelf there. But Cell has redeeming qualities. It's king, man. Like sure, I lo- I love that. Like it's it's his zombies. It's his it's his answer to the zombies. He's never going to write a zombie book, you know. So this is as close as we're going to get from him from a zombie book, unless you count Pet Cemetery, which I guess you could. But uh, Cell, it definitely. I love three quarters of that book, and then I feel like there's a deep dive at the end. Um, it's good. I, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because. Even like my least favorite uh, books of his, I still find something to enjoy about him. Um, I would put Cujo on the list of books I don't really like by him. That one was not what I was expecting. There's a lot more masturbation than I expected. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like I, you know, I watched the movie way before I read the book. So it, the, the drama that unfolded in the movie was way more like it felt dread and it felt like you're on a time limit. It was a crunch for this, you know, and it, it just felt the pace was different for the movie. And then when I read the book, you know, it's a thick book, man. And like the pace is, it doesn't feel as dire. And I, so maybe Cujo, maybe, I don't know. Like I said, I can find redeeming qualities in any of them in all real, reality, but yeah. Um, yeah. One of those two, probably, I don't know. That's harder to say than my favorite. I could talk about all my favorite, you know, King books, and I have a definite one, which is a long walk, but then I could, you know, we could rattle off and talk about ones that, that are close second or close third, you know, and like there's a good, good chunk of them that, uh, you know, it just so, it's just something about that motherfucker, man. I just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get Stephen King. I don't understand how everything he touches, I could just get the fucking, uh, you know, the blurb online, what he's going to be reading. And I'm like, that sounds stupid. I, I know I'm going to love it though. You know, like just because I just don't know, man, there's not a lot of authors out there that I know that I can go into a book and trusting. I'm going to take something away from it. That, that was entertaining. You know, that wasn't, there's not a complete waste of time. And people, people tend to kind of not like a lot of his newer stuff compared to his older stuff. And I don't find that to be true. I think a lot of his new stuff is just as fun. He so. says it himself and I agree with it, but you know, he believes that people, when they go to his work, it's not the story. It's not the plot. It's not the characters. It's his voice, the yeah. writer's voice that comes through. And it's true. He has a specific voice. And whether you are reading something that's really horrifying and supernatural, like Pet Cemetery, or whether you're reading something that's more dramatic, but also historical like 11 63 or whether you're wa- reading yeah. end of watch or you know something that's more like a cop drama action yeah. thriller his voice is still there you can tell that this is yeah true. yeah dude like maybe i could even put my favorite book as him like maybe it's on writing you know like mm. the amount of times i've read on i've read that book more than any of his other books you Me know too. and yeah. it, that could be easily be argued to be my favorite book of his and that's it's great. crazy that he has a a book on writing, right? That his voice is still there. Like you still read it, and you're like, you know that Stephen King wrote this, and that's really yeah. fucking cool. I have I have a you know a pile of books on on writing, and it's like they all feel cookie cutter, and they feel like 
you know, I could tell you, I could read you a passage from one book and a passage from another book, and you would be like, they're from the same book, you know. But yeah. on writing, you know, like he has his voice, and he t- it just it's really interesting, you know. In fourteen oh eight, you know, the little little tidbits inside there, it's really cool. I I can recommend too. There is my second favorite book, and I actually I just listened to this audio book. It was in November. It was in November, but it's Chuck Palahniuk and it's his book, Consider This. And it's very similar to On Writing in that it is part autobiography, part book on the craft. And it's so good, man. Like for me, Chuck Palahniuk, I've I've read a number of his books. And for me, he's very hit and miss. I either love his work or I'm just like, oh, man, I wasted my time. But I will say after reading this book and hearing his voice and his just the amount of vulnerability and genuineness that he put into that book, I am a fan of his. And I've actually while I was (laughs) in North Carolina visiting family, which is I was it was on the way to North Carolina that I finished the audio book. I went to a used bookstore and they had a bunch of his books. I bought them all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i was at a used bookstore and i found a signed copy of haunted so that was kind of fun yeah i mean i yeah i agree some of his books are hit and miss in all reality but i've, I've heard really good things about his the book you're talking about and i maybe the review i even read was yours uh but yeah i'm like it's on my radar i'm going to be reading that one it's cool i, I really want to read into more of those instead of like reading these these books that are kind of like the techniques and the technical aspects and all that stuff, just somebody that's done it and does it, you know, and walk you through it. Like it doesn't have to be about the technicalities of it and like why you should do it like this, but it's more like how they developed their own technique and how they got there. And it's really, so I'm probably going to dive into that one relatively soon after I finished 25 goosebump books. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, as we wrap this up, I've got one more question for you. And I want to ask you. Who would win in a fight, me or Goodwin? (laughs) That's what you wanted to ask me. And I know that it was coming. Like, or is it me and and Morgan? Or is it me and hey, in our little group, there's a lot of people that want to fight me. And I'm here to tell them all that bring it. Like, like, I know that was your question. I saw it coming up. Like, yeah, I'll fight you all. I don't care. No hesitation. Gloves are off. Well, there it is. Catch me. I'm going to run. Yeah, there There it is. is. End of the episode. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For for anybody that hasn't picked up yet, there is this running joke with Mike Salt that he's always starting fights and always wants to punch people. So if you listen to any podcast with any of the spooky friends on them, usually it'll get brought up in some way, shape or form. So, you know, we got to keep that going. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I've really dove into it. And just like leaned into it in the group. I don't actually know where it came from. I'm not a violent person, but I'll fucking fight everyone. I'll fucking <laughs> take you all down. So, okay. Now let let me ask this question, or I'm going to fight you. <laughs> okay. Oh, jeez. Oh no. Uh, all right, call me out. I'm a, answer this for our listeners. What are three? supernatural horror books i'll i'll expand it horror books or movies that you want to recommend to our listeners maybe someone who hasn't really watched or read anything of of a supernatural vein what would you recommend them to start with balls man you think that 
I would actually have something off the top of my head. Fuck. Okay, so so I'm gonna do uh, what? I get movies first. I would do three movies. Oculus. Okay. Uh, Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan. I did not see that one coming. I thought I was gonna hate it. It's a WWE, you know, wrestling production. You know, I, I watched it just thinking it was gonna be garbage. But fuck, man, Mike Flanagan, he kills it. That movie is so good. Um, and then Kevin Bacon and Stir of Echoes. Mm, yes. That book, that movie, dude. That I think if ghosts are real, that is the closest we're gonna get. Like straight up, that movie. It is terrifying and it's gut wrenching. And Kevin Bakey, man, he he just carries that movie. It's a good one. I recommend it to a lot of people. And it's not, it's not too scary that you couldn't. You have to be an actual fan to watch. But there's scary parts in it, but the casual viewer would enjoy it. And I think my favorite supernatural of all time that scared the piss out of me when I was a child. And as an adult, I still find it terrifying is Peter Jackson's the frighteners mm. with Michael J. Fox. And it's a good one. And that one's fun. And, and it's just uh, the way that Peter Jackson makes the villain ghost and the, it just so spooky, so spooky. I love it. Um, yeah. Those are the movies. I mean, dude, I could talk for days about, Spooky cinema because I, I was at a point in my life before I had all the babies in the world. I would uh I would watch a scary movie at night, you know. It was just my jam. I would just watch a scary movie before I went to bed and would go to sleep, you know. Uh, but I don't really my wife doesn't let me do that anymore because she doesn't like nightmares and whatever, <laughs> whatever. So we watch we watch scary movies. She likes scary movies, but I burnt her out, she says. She's like, in the first five years together, the first two years were just scary movies all the time. And she's like, I need a break. And I'm like, oh, no, please no. Like I, we bonded over this. This is unfair to take it away from me. So, uh, uh, scary books though, paranormal. Uh, my number one recommendation is also *Stir of Echoes* by okay. Richard Matheson. Yep. Uh, that book, it. I have this thing where um, I love Richard Matheson, but I refuse to buy his books off of Amazon, and I refuse to buy if I see that like you know. Uh, Barnes and Nobles. I won't buy it there. I only want to buy his books if I find him at a used bookstore. And it's kind of like a scavenger hunt. So when I'm going to these bookstores, there's Richard Matheson books. If I can find one of his books, particularly an older one, I will snatch it in a minute, you know? And I'm also on the hunt for like Starship Troopers, a couple of like books that are like on my, my scavenger hunt that I'm always looking for. But uh, I found Richard Matheson's Sturb Echoes finally. Like it took me years to find it. And I finally found it. And it did not disappoint. Like it was, it was something else. It was not like the movie, which was like, I was expecting it to follow so many beats, but it was way, you know, it was Richard Matheson's style. It was like slower and more character driven. And there's a point in it where you're just like unsure of what's happening for the character, for his own mindset. And it just mm -hmm. really good. I really love that one. Kill Creek. Sure. I really recommend that one. Um, Scott Thomas. When I, uh, won the ink shares 2018 horror competition uh scott thomas reached out to me and he has worked with ink shares and he just congratulated me and he was so nice and he was like he just you know welcomed me to the family and he talked to me about like like his experience with ink share and his you know the goods and the bads and you know and he really gave me a minute just to kind of just take in the wind but also take in like i did something that my, one of my goals was accomplished and I went out and I bought his book immediately. And 
no, no fucking wonder it was, you know, nominated for a Bram Stoker. It was so, it's so good. It's so good. I, I, I lend that book out of my library more than any other book. Like I, I will show people that want to read. I have a lot of friends that come act like I'm a fucking horror book library. And I always recommend that one start here. And more often than not, they take it just because they, they, they read the back, they read, get a little taste of it and they want it. It's just a good book. And then, you know, fuck what's, what would be number three? The Exorcist? Yes. Exorcist, man. I, I mean, that book took me way too long to read. Like, yeah. I, I, I think I, I bought it back in college and I just let it sit on my shelf for like 12 years after that. And then I finally just picked it up and I was, I loved it, man. It was, it was good. It's definitely need a reread. I, something I want to read again, just to take it all in after, you know, you know, after like another 10 years of not reading it, I want to go back and just enjoy it again. Cause I know that there's things I've forgotten or things I missed. And I, that's a good one. I think that it's, it's really forgotten because so many other books have kind of surpassed it and kind of um, the movie itself has surpassed it as its own entity. But people forget that the book came first and the book is fucking phenomenal. Yeah, it is. It's, it's in my, my top five favorite books. Love yeah, I got one. Nailed it. <laughs> okay, so just to recap, listeners, go watch Oculus, Stir of Echoes, and The Frighteners. And yeah, read, read yep. Stir of Echoes, Kill Creek, yep. and The Exorcist. Yeah, you fucking nerds. Go read. Go read a book. <laughs> All right. So. Well... Mike, I, I understand you need to get going because you have some chores to do. Grown ass man, I have chores. Grown ass man chores. But before you, know. you do, tell our listeners, maybe they're hearing you for the first time and they want to know more. Where can they find more about you? Where are the best places for them to connect with you? You can't. I'm off the internet. I'm reclusive like Bigfoot. <laughs> if you want to find me, you have to go to the wilderness, the Pacific Northwest. All right, go out there, go to the woods, find me. I'm, I'm hiding, hanging out with my boy Bigfoot in a cave. But if you don't live in Pacific Northwest, you could probably go on Instagram. I'm probably there at Mike underscore salt uh, on Twitter. If you're following me on Instagram, I, do, I basically post what I post on Twitter. So it's <laughs> two for one in that one. <laughs> Mike Salt Moose. And then I just started a Facebook page. Um, I used to have a Facebook author page, but Facebook algorithm so messed up. Um, yeah. So I started a new page and it's just Mike Salt. I live there and I'll be, I'll be posting pools and doing giveaways on my Facebook page for a while. Just trying to get people jumping over there. Uh, I don't know how to at all link that. I'm sure there's a link somewhere, but if you just search Mike Salt, it's the one with my hair and my glasses. And I'm like, ooh. So I don't know. But yeah, Mike underscore Salt, that's generally where I live. I have a website, but I don't update it because why? I don't have the time. It exists, but don't bother. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's basically where you can find me. Um, or the woods. Let's not forget the woods exist. Yeah, and for anybody listening, just so it's clear, Mike Salt is currently wearing a Bigfoot hoodie. That's what yeah. it looks like. That is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. That was not planned, but yeah. It, it's there. And I have Bigfoot <laughs> over, my, over my office, just Bigfoot, just hanging out, lurking, you know? And so he's a thing. He exists right. or he well, doesn't. Who knows? I will let you go. Uh, if 
I think you need to go die, talk to God, come back, search for Bigfoot, write a book. I'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we yep. can get together again sometime in the future. But in yep. the meantime, I like, I like I, I'm going to die. But the big takeaway isn't the fact that there's a heaven. It's like, what happened? I died. And I was told that there's a Bigfoot. Like, who told you? Don't worry about it. The focus yeah. is Bigfoot. No, that's a, that's a takeaway there. Like, I, I could, yeah, that's fair. That's the only takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mike Salt, thank you Me. for entering into the gloom. Yeah, I did it. I fucking did it, Mom. That's not listening to this because she doesn't support me. I fucking did it, kids. That I'm sure will listen to this when they're older. Because I'll have downloaded it and played it on repeat every day when they go to sleep. We did it, team. We did it. And dear listeners, do exactly what Mike Salt just said. Play my podcast every single day. Thank you. We hope this episode haunts your nightmares. It's been an honor to scare you. Be sure to subscribe and also follow Into the Gloom podcast on Instagram for news on upcoming offerings. Until we meet again, remember to leave a light on.